I want to open with this from probably my favorite Joan Didion essay called Insider Baseball, which she published on October 27th, 1988. I'm guessing in NYRB. Uh, she'd never done campaign coverage before. This is from her book, Political Fictions. And the introduction is quite interesting because she talks about how she shifted from Republican to Democrat in the 80s. And she noticed that that changed literally nothing about her life. And that gave her all sorts of questions about what the two parties could possibly mean. This piece covers the 1988 campaign. I think it's probably a Rosetta Stone for understanding how political campaigns work even today at a media level and who they're for, who they exclude, and the assumptions that get propagated within them. So I'll just read a few paragraphs from what is the intro to this essay. It occurred to me during the summer of 1988 in California and Atlanta and New Orleans, in the course of watching the first California primary and then the Democratic and Republican national conventions, that it had not been by accident that the people with whom I had preferred to spend time in high school had, on the whole, hung out in gas stations. They had not run for student body office. They had not gone to Yale or Swarthmore or DePauw, nor had they even applied. They had gotten drafted, gone through basic at Fort Ord. They had knocked up girls and married them and had begun what they called the first night of the rest of their lives with a midnight drive to Carson City and a $5 ceremony performed by a justice of the peace still in his pajamas. They got jobs at the places that had laid off their uncles. They paid their bills or did not pay their bills, made down payments on tract houses, led lives on that social and economic edge referred to in Washington as quote unquote, out there. They were never destined to be, in other words, communicants and what we have come to call when we want to indicate the traditional ways in which power is exchanged and the status quo maintained in the United States, the process. The process today gives everyone a chance to participate. Tom Hayden, by way of explaining the difference between 1968 and 1988, said to Bryant Gumbel on NBC at 7.50 a.m. on the day after Jesse Jackson spoke at the 1988 Democratic Convention in Atlanta. This was at a convention that had as its controlling principle the notably non-participatory goal of unity, demonstrably not true, but people inside the process, constituting as they do a self-created and self-referring class, a new kind of managerial elite, tend to speak of the world not necessarily as it is, but as they want people to, out there to believe it is. They tend to prefer the theoretical to the observable and to miss that which might be learned empirically as quote-unquote anecdotal. The assumption here that the narrative should be not just written only by its own specialists, but also legible only to its own specialists, is why, finally, an American presidential campaign raises questions that go so vertiginously to the heart of the structure.
This is your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible anymore. This is Emmett. This is John. And we're beginning a series that we have talked about for a while, and it seems to have come to fruition. We're going to be beginning what we call the Lash Files. I found out about Christopher Lash through John several years ago in one of our incredibly long, multi-paragraph text exchanges uh, while I was lying in my bed on the floor in Santa Fe, and we were both lamenting the state of the nation. This was several years ago. And John had posted a clip from his book, and not only was the writing thoughtful, uh, it seemed to elucidate a lot of what was going on around us. I was shocked and appalled to find out that the culture of narcissism appeared in what, like the 70s? Mm -hmm. Late 70s, I think. Yep. yep, followed in the early 80s, I believe, by the minimal self. Um, now we're reading uh, his last book, released in the 90s, is that right? Yeah, The Revolt of the Elites. I think he had a book posthumously released on women and feminism that is based on his notes. I'm not totally sure, but I think this was the last book he carried out in full before he died of cancer. He had an operation which removed the cancer in 92, I think, and they found out it was still metastasizing, and he was like, I'm not doing chemo. The American cult of clinging to life is horrific to me. I just, excuse me, I just want to finish my book and walk to the end of my life with dignity. So he was a man who walked the walk. This book has come on our radar because I think after the bungling of the pandemic and, well, generally, we talked about in our first episode how it seems like nobody knows how to run any of the institutions they're put in charge of anymore. And in fact, in some cases, when we look at who is put in charge of the post office or whatever, they're actively meant to destroy the institution that they have put, been put in charge of running. That's not just part of the Trump administration. That has been happening a lot uh, since conservatives waged a war on the state as such, except for, of course, its military and policing capabilities. Yeah, which interestingly ballooned. <laughs> yeah, amazing how that happened. <laughs> so the book is called The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy. And because Lash is a smart guy, and because he seemed to write these books that thoroughly explained the contours and intricacies of a zeitgeist from which we have not emerged. We thought we would do some close reading here and deep dive the whole book for you guys. So this is going to be the first entry in that. And to do that, we need to establish exactly who he thinks the elites were and how he saw them change over time. Why they're in revolt, and how that can be understood as a betrayal of democracy. So we're going to walk through that, and then we're going to spin off into some other ideas, likely, as we go through it. So who are the elites? Interestingly, Lash, who was a historian, locates his conception of the elites in the post-Civil War era, I would say the late 19th century, which is the era of progressivism, 
And it is also the Industrial Revolution, which has huge impacts on American life. America moves from being an agrarian economy, largely, an economy that deals within the cycles of seasons and people who are very spread out from each other, and monitoring time, not just seasonally, but by how, when the sun rises and when it falls, to a society that measures time by the watch, by the shift horn at the factory, by train schedules, in other words, by the hand of man. This is also when we get our robber barons, our railroad tycoons, these people who become the upper echelon of American society. Yeah, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Ford. Carnegie, all of them. You know the names. Uh, they all have foundations that have been international far before America was an international empire, which is also something we'll get to at some point. Now, there's sort of a deal these elites strike with the American people. And that deal is that if they're going to be so wealthy, then they're also going to have some sort of civic obligation to fund libraries, opera houses, things like that. The Cokes still do this, actually. There's a largesse there that is both civic and selfish. There's an understanding that in order to keep the hordes at bay, there has to be some sort of contract with the people. And importantly for Lash, because the United States is not necessarily globalized yet, though obviously a market economy exists between nations, they see their fates as bound up with the fate of the United States. And we don't think about this anymore, but with the city that they're helping to industrialize or cities, the idea that you would have pride in your city now doesn't really seem like a thing as much as it used to. And I think we'll get into that as we unpack what Christopher Lash has to say about that. Yeah, those... He points out that the, it's in fact the, the workers at this time who are more often than not transients um, mm -hmm. who have to move to work, whereas the elites are the people who've usually lived in a place for generations, at least by this time in America. Their ties are extremely deep and you know, uh, rooted to the land in a way. Um, and he's going to talk about how that underwent almost a total reversal. And it's interesting to think about that because it's a pretty, I would say it's a typical historical formation that the rich in a society um, have a sort of civic obligation that they fulfill. Like if you look at the way Rome operated, a lot of that. Um, yeah, the public works provide, of Athens. You yeah, know. you had to provide for like the city and the people to be a politician, essentially. A lot of your money went towards that. In the Islamic world, uh, it was a society of endowments for like a thousand years. Um, every hospital, school, uh, mosque, university, um, anything that you could name that had a public function existed and was established by a wealthy Muslim as a charitable trust in perpetuity, which existed to basically help the society run. And there was a religious component to that, that they were, you know, since they were establishing something that would take care of people beyond their own lifetime, 
they could in turn expect good deeds to accrue to them even after they passed out of this world. And so there is a certain uh, long running established concern for posterity, which will be an emerging theme as well as we talk about pretty much any book Lash ever wrote. <laughs> yeah, the concern for posterity and how that's disappeared is something that has, one of his observations that has deeply shaped my life, I would say, and how I approach thinking about politics and thinking about, frankly, culture and what it means to make things that endure. So the, that's, that's how he saw the elites. And how that changes is quite interesting. So first of all, he opens the book by listing a number of problems, which, still with, still, ugh, which we still deal with today. You know, the rising crime rate of the 90s is not a problem anymore, the way it was then. I'm, I think people forget that. I mean, we've had... Decapitated heads in bed Yeah, it was uh, pandemonium. I mean, this is stuff that led to the crime bill that has its own very dark, you know, chain, set of chain reactions that create what people refer to as the carceral state. Uh, but the fact that we live in a gig economy, no one knows why nothing works anymore, and the people in charge of things don't seem to be competent handlers of anything they have. I mean, we've all, t we've talked about this on the show. So what happens to the elites? I would say that John intimates that they become cosmopolitans. We've talked about how offshoring, Lash doesn't mention this by name, but it's sort of an operating function behind this, how offshoring and the internationalization of the like high finance and things like that uh, removes the stake in the nation state that the elites feel. And they no longer feel a civic obligation. And that when they refer to democracy, what they're really talking about is a type of what Alistair McIntyre would call emotivism and what Lash calls a therapeutic politics that is all about moral and self-esteem uplift rather than distribution of property, which is something he is preeminently concerned with. Yeah, and he locates that in something pretty similar to like, oh, I think so basic Foucauldian observation that the role of the priest transfers at some point to the role of the psychiatrist. Um, he would think about it in terms of like disciplinary function. But I think we could say even more broadly, like the expansion of the helping professions, like social workers, things like that, form this whole new societal function, like what you're talking about. Um, I think Lash is going to say that without religion, people instead start turning to a religious identity politics, which has a therapeutic component which is supposed to perform a lot of the same social functions that I don't know, people who are like sociologists or something might attribute to like a religion. And but we can see that now, right? I remember yeah. going to um, back when I was still in the DSA and very involved in it for listeners abroad or people in the US who aren't horribly poisoned by paying attention to extremely online politics. It's the Democratic Socialists of America. I remember going to several meetings where there was like some sort of prayer at the beginning that we were all living on stolen land and we had to offer up our thoughts to 
those from whom the land had been taken. I don't think that's an ignoble sentiment, but I do wonder what the hell it's doing before a political committee meeting. You know, I mean, I think that's exactly, that's a religious maneuver that prefaces what was, uh, I remember the person who, who led that, um, interestingly enough, a white woman who came to talk to us about the importance of identity politics and understanding identity coalitions within Santa Fe where we were living. And the whole kerfuffle over identity politics now is something that I think really begins in the post-war era. People can check out True Ray Reed's uh, Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. He goes after guys like Oscar Handlin, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Obama and this as a rightward identitarian shift that foregoes any idea of political economy and starts to see America as actually cultural enclaves. And that's what makes America so great. But it also abjures class antagonisms within these very groups themselves and how things actually work at a policy level is to Ray Reed's argument that it's universal programs that do the most good. And it's really not unlikely that a lot of cultural discourse is in fact a psychological operation. Um, I'm <laughs> yes. just sort of convinced of that. Like the vast yeah. majority of people who are involved in that have some kind of strange ties to certain organizations. Mm-hmm. And it's totally a psyop. Absolutely. Like all of the stuff in the seventies and eighties where conservatives were trying to say culture is the driver of capitalist production and thus like the proper cultures will have good capitalist production and thus increase their wealth. And so, you know, it's the fault of the like lazy Hispanics and their culture, which idolizes like siestas that they can't produce like the Anglos and the East Asians can and all that sort of like, it all really does seem to emerge from certain sectors that have a vested interest and the American public having a certain interpretation of how things work that allows certain policies to be enacted. It's, you know, a lot of it is just such intellectual garbage. And I don't think that there is a very clear history of how we'll say the tradition of United States identity politics has a lot of points of connection with those discourses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were telling me, we'll talk about this next year, we're going to do a whole series on South Korea and its development. But John was telling me that he had read this article where this conservative guy was like, yeah, you know, the reason that South Koreans could really do capitalism so well, they didn't even need the state. They just had a superior culture. And as you will know, when we go through this, that's an insane thing to claim because it was a command economy created by a dictator. <laughs> yeah. And it, <laughs> it starts to point to maybe another one of the themes of our shows, which is certain intellectual currents seemingly being utterly ahistorical and detached from reality, kind of making junky-esque claims about things in order to achieve really immediate like desires. And that was definitely one of them because the only way you could say that South Korea was proof of like free market power is either by like never knowing anything about South Korea and thus staying safe from that knowledge or by being, you know, blatantly dishonest there's a certain amount of that going on and i don't think that it's entirely separable from left identity discourse and i think it would be helpful to to start identifying right identity discourse 
historically in the 20th century as being a part of that stream because they've informed each other and we just sort of are mystified about how. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why Ture Reed just refers to it as a right shift generally, because that's where that goes. You know, as his father, Adolf Reed said, um, when that train gets moving, you know that that motherfucker's going straight to Auschwitz. <laughs> <laughs> so let's bring it back to Lash, right? We just talked about uh, sort of the mystifications of the ruling class, their ideas about culture, and how this is decoupled from reality. I want to paint a picture really quickly to understand the moment we're going to in the 90s. And talk about the malaise that set in, especially because Robert Reich is sort of seen as somebody who has the antidote and Lash really takes him to task. I'm interested to see if he does so later on in the book as well. So Vietnam is obviously catastrophic for America. We had the New Deal becomes an international element of America's imperial footprint, and its ideology. There's even a point where LBJ wants to do a TVA on the Mekong Delta. And obviously that fails. So some dreams of modernization and technical prowess that were so important to the American identity crash to ground. And the best and the brightest, represented by Robert McNamara, don't succeed. Then we get Watergate. Then we get OPEC. We get all of the civil unrest. The OPEC crisis creates a very interesting problem in America. Andrew Bacevich's uh, history of America's wars in the greater Middle East, um, we'll link it in the bibliography, has a great discussion of this in terms of its ideas of plenty, what's available. This leads to Jimmy Carter's great malaise speech, which I believe uh, Lash consulted on. Mm. And then we go into the 80s with Reaganomics. There's no alternative, you know, late Cold War pessimism uh, and a rightward shift that crushes labor. Manufacturing starts getting offshored. This weakens the unions, one of the few civil institutions left that guarantees people any power uh, beyond the ballot box, which is essential. You can't just have the ballot box as what civic life is reduced to. I think I I don't think I need to elaborate on that point. I think we can just look around us to understand why that's true. And then we have the dual threat rising in the 80s and into the 90s of Germany and Japan. Mostly Japan. We need to understand we crushed Japan. I mean, I don't the nuclear attacks on Japan are insane. They're totally insane. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I think LeMay was his name, the guy who did, did the brutal firebombing campaign. Curtis LeMay. Curtis LeMay was actually a, one of the few generals who voted against the nuclear assault. He was like, this is crazy. I'm already like crushing these people. They're going to give up any day. Uh, he was totally against it, which I think speaks to how profoundly dark that decision was. But we laid waste to that empire. We crushed it. And then we built it back. And then, you know, so many decades later, its automotive industry starts decimating the American automotive industry. To understand, because we've lost it now in huge ways, what that really means, the automotive industry was the engine through which we geared up 
for World War II primarily. It is on the strength of those unions, the idea of the car as an idea of American freedom, the superhighway, all of this stuff comes out of the larger ideologies, the larger cultural forces, class structures, etc., that are bound up in the American automotive industry. This is a huge blow in a series of uppercuts to American self-image. And it seems like no one's in control and no one can do anything. And no one even has competent explanations for why it's happening. Imagine that. One other really interesting thing to think about is 1993, the X-Files debuts. Um, I love to talk about the X-Files as a sort of like it's a barometer you can look at to see where the American national consciousness was. And I feel like watching it, especially now rewatching it, is extremely instructive of like how we felt about life. Like, you know, Mulder is sort of talking to this really shady guy who's supposed to know people in Congress who are like trafficking in alien babies, you know, and like mm-hmm. there's just all this weird stuff going on. And like his father was like a part of a government organization where there's like black and white photos from the 40s of crazy stuff they were doing. And a lot of our ability to understand the history, the 20th century history of the United States, um, everything's behind this like esoteric haze. Uh, for a reason like the vast majority of what was going on was classified or you know like mm-hmm. sort of shrouded in a certain level of fear um but it was clear to us by this point that we were doing a lot of stuff justified by the fact that we were facing the soviets across the water and we had to be able to fight them on every field that we thought they were going to fight us um and around you know like so this is the general the general sort of attitude. You also like have Ruby Ridge, you have Waco, you have a bunch of strange groups like popping up in California. And the elsewhere. 1996 Olympic bombing, which yeah, ended up being some uh, right-wing Christian anti-abortion activist that sent that set that pipe bomb off. Pete, yeah, and there's so many um, militia groups were active then too in a big way that we mm-hmm. forget because it kind of calmed down, but there is a definite fear i think by people in the u.s government that they were going to start an open revolt various Mm -hmm. times um so the 90s were kind of like i think people remember the 90s today and they're like oh mtv america's uh, vacation from history yeah like everything was but things were kind of crazy and i think people were sort of paranoid uh and anxious about a lot of things and it kind of ties into our greater theme about the sort of mystification that took place between us and the process as Joe mm-hmm. Didion might say, like it's extremely hard to feel like you have anything to do with governance when you live in the X files. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's just off the table. Like yeah. you don't play a meaningful part. And Lash talks about that when he talks about people's relationship to um, what he'll call knowledge, which he says is being replaced by information, which is essentially a form of entertainment or, stimulation which we receive from television news um and he'll link it and i don't say that like this could or could not be true but it's just an interesting thought that the decoupling of knowledge 
and the ability to interact with like our institutions that are supposed to be part of the democratic system is a part of the fact that we no longer believe that we meaningfully affect anything. And so we no longer have any real internal motivation to gain the knowledge that would be useful for doing that because why learn about something that has no point? Like, mm-hmm. and there is a general sense that there's no point, like you go vote, you watch the TV or whatever, but like, that's it, you know? And I think that it's hard to explain that growing sense outside of these other things that were going on socially and in the culture that are extremely dark and violent and uh, many times and speak to a sense that we're being controlled by people who really don't care about us and they're in dark rooms, they're smoking, you know, the smoking man from X-Files. That's sort of like, I feel like I grew up seeing that. So I just grew up thinking that that was the government, honestly. Like Mm -hmm. those were some of my earliest images of like people in charge is like the smoking guy in X-Files. And it all kind of ties together for me in terms of like my own personal disconnection from the idea that I could do anything about anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think that that brings us to a question of uh, more concretely who the elites are now. He uses a phrase developed by Barbara Ehrenreich that has also come back into vogue, though she thinks it doesn't actually exist as a class formation anymore. And that's the professional managerial class, right? Or the upper middle class. I would make a distinction here by referring to my own suburban upbringing is that people in the middle class, like my parents, lived in post-war housing and cul-de-sacs in the suburbs and people in the upper middle class lived in starter castles or McMansions down the block. I think that's helpful to understand it here. And they become what Robert Reich describes and Lash indicts as syntactically incoherent, the symbolic analysts of the world, the people who deal in the process, as Joan Didion would call it, or who deal in financialization, or all of these things. They are removed from manufacturing. They don't have any respect for labor. They don't even see themselves, interestingly, as Americans. That's something that I can say is true in my own life. I didn't really consider the way in which I might be American or what that was supposed to mean. I belonged to something else. I didn't quite know what it was, but I had no sense of civic duty or an idea of the nation state. This didn't become any part of my upbringing as a kid. Uh, until my teen years when 9-11 has a kind of revanchist element uh, in, its, in its, the backlash to the terrorist attack. But even then, it's a very pale idea of, I think, what patriotism might actually mean. It seems more like obedience rather than a type of love and want for the best of the country. And it's interesting. Um, I stopped to notice that we started with the elites as like, Vanderbilt and Rockefeller and we ended up with the elites as people who are definitely not a part of that class um, never Mm -hmm. had any connections to that kind of money or that kind of power or influence we start with magnates but we end up with the elites as a much larger body of educated professionals who deal mainly in abstractions of different kinds and um as Lash is going to point out, exists mainly as sort of transients who travel um, from Mm -hmm. city to city usually, but any place where there is a large collection of them and where they find employment in different ways. And 
I think it's interesting to see that movement because I've been thinking a lot lately about whether or not PMC isn't exactly a helpful way of looking at them. Because I think in some regards, certainly, there is a broad professional class which doesn't make any decisions of importance, but they serve as functionaries or engineers. Or Arbiters, obstacles. Knowledge creation and dissemination and obfuscation. Um, all of this kind of stuff is going on in their world. And that's who we're talking about typically when we say PMC, it like kind of overlaps with the, the, the symbolic analyst idea of Reich. Um, but at the same time, it does sort of seem like it can obfuscate a little bit, some material realities. And maybe we'll get more into that later. I just kind of wanted to bring it up because there is a certain ambiguity of talking about things with these terms until I think maybe we hammer them down a lot more. And that might just be a process, honestly, of many episodes of this show. Yeah. Like, yeah. But I think it's a good open question to have and what that really means. Um, mm-hmm. Because Lash will get into what Emmett is talking about is when you exist oppositely of how his um, yielded age you know, industrial magnate existed, which is somebody who made a huge capital investment in material stuff that now all sits on American soil run by American workers. Like, even if they're, you know, not as locally defined anymore, they still have a vested interest in the future of the nation if only because their entirety of their investment sits inside of this nation and relies upon the people of this nation. And so you can see them playing a certain role in our society that could be called charitable or, um, you know, it'll come up as noblesse oblige at various times. Mm -hmm. A certain idea that we tend to project back to the old European aristocracy, especially the English, of a kind of, you know, you're exalted above everyone else, you're wealthy, and you will always live better than us. And so in return for that, you'll now provide for everybody who needs your help. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll take on more responsibility than we will in many ways. And there will be a reciprocity in our relationship, which holds the society together and kind of bonds us sentimentally even. And one of the big themes, you know, of the transformation that happens in the early 20th century is basically the destruction of that aristocracy, uh, the ruthless logic of global capital, destroying the relationships mm. that are being described therein, and the transformation of what was initially conceived as reciprocal into adversarial um, like you in relation to that person can no longer expect that they're going to look out for you in any way. That's kind of, if you go look at like job reddits or something, like everyone's saying like, you know, screw your employer, like leave at the earliest opportunity, job hop as much as you can. It doesn't matter if they're relying on you because I used to think that I should be nice to my employer and that they were relying on me. And that if I was a good guy, I would get a good turn. 
and I was stuck on, took lower pay to help them finish a project and they dumped me as soon as it was convenient, mm-hmm. you know, and I was Absolutely. out of my ass. And so there is a growing shift where this relationship that I think Lash is looking back on deteriorates pretty rapidly and you're left with something, you know, quite a bit different, populated by people who are now much larger like so we're looking at the elites in a new way you could say that they're like the top 20 percent of the nation it's a much larger body of people and i think the story is pretty easy for us to understand because it's so typical if you are or know anyone in that strata of society you grow up you have to do well in high school so you can get into one of the IVs. You go to one of the IVs and you become a computer programmer, a financial person, or like a doctor or something. And this involves you leaving your hometown to go to one of those colleges. You go mm-hmm. to that college. This is my story. This is basically what you're, you're saying, right? Like I was a scholarship kid at a prep school. I became a scholarship kid at an expensive, smaller liberal arts college. And this was all seen as trundling on the path to what would be my middle class success of, I don't know, getting bylines in the Atlantic or some shit. And that's, you know, how I saw my life path. I think 2011, when I graduated, there was a very rude awakening into what the actual deal was and how it had changed. But this is something that begins in the 80s. The idea of having these small artisanal colleges other than the Ivy Leagues is, of course, something that Brad Easton Ellis, having gone to my alma mater, starts to exploit. And that's why it plays such a big role in Rules of Attraction, which takes place at Bennington, my alma mater, and um, that the older brother of one of the main characters in Rules of Attraction is Patrick Bateman, the main character in American Psycho, who is coming to prominence in the mergers and acquisitions bloodbath of like the RJR Nabisco scene of the late 80s, where everybody's somebody's son. That's the one of the jokes of both uh, of the the movie is when they all have the business cards and they're showing them and people often focus on the way they talk about the business cards the way the internal monologue moves like oh it's ivory and like it's got this typeface but it's important to actually read the business cards and they all say executive vice president (laughs) 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 and it's like 10 guys in a room working for the same company Yeah, I think, and it, for me, I'll bring my own experience into it a little bit. Um, I did not leave the town that I grew up in until I was in my late, mid, mid-20s, we'll say. Um, one of the things that bothered me when I was growing up a lot was the realization that all of the friends that I had, like, were going to disperse at some point. I had seen enough of it that I knew that people were going to leave um, generally, eventually. And the people who stayed in town with me, like, you know, were working in gas stations, basically. Like, and the people who left were like going to colleges and having a totally different kind of life. And the connections they had to our town basically withered uh, pretty quickly, I want to say. Like, yeah. It happens so fast. It happens so fast. I mean, people don't understand this. I talked to my wife about it um, because she grew up in Los Angeles, you know, and I grew up in the Illinois suburbs. And one of the greatest fears you can have in growing up in flyover country is not making it out and what that will do to you. 
there's both like uh uh it's like everything's the last helicopter out of saigon you know (laughs) like i'm gonna die here if i don't get out is i think an overriding fear of a lot of people because of the very dynamics we're talking about just like lash says in the book um they are less interested in leadership than escaping the common lot. And I think that that was something that I came late to. I didn't have a lot of notion that I could escape the common lot. Um, I just, I did poorly in school and I ended up dropping out and I didn't really know what was going to happen in my life. I just didn't think about the future basically for a really long time. I just kind of existed in a bubble of like the eternal present or something playing video games and reading wikipedia and posting on obscure stalinist message boards for like months on end yeah so there wasn't a whole lot of note like you know i just thought that my escape from the common lot would be hiding in like this little fold in my hometown or something but only after having to actually work at the jobs that i could get for a while did i realize what the common lot was and how being like a neat fail son had sort of for a while protected me from that reality and I could just kind of like read and lay around and do nothing. But once I started to had to like look at making a living, I realized like, Oh, this sucks. And like, you know, I mean, we worked the same dishwashing job. Yeah. We worked the same dishwashing job. They didn't pay you like close to minimum wage for the hours you were not even, it was like $5 an hour. And they are kind of like, I don't know. The guy there treated me like so weird. He was kind of like gave me my money and he was like, the bars are still open if you want to go drink. I was like, what? Like, <laughs> yeah, like with the, the $40 you yeah. gave me? I'm going to walk across <laughs> Thomasville to the filling station. <laughs> so it, there is a kind of like sense of a lot of my friends who were going to try and get into what we're calling the PMC. They left and they went and tried to do it. And what I was left with was kind of like this weird cobbled together sense of like place and home. And one of the things that preoccupied me a lot was how mobile everyone was and how it seemed like you would never be able to create a legitimate community where you had long-term meaningful attachments to other people, which gave you a sense of like one duration to security. Um, you know, like I would just sit, this is one of my, my preoccupations. I would watch like Vikings or something. Um, and then I would think like, what must it feel like to be able to like walk around with a bunch of guys who you're just going to hang out with for the rest of your life. And if anything went mm-hmm. down, you're all just going to like throw down. And that's basically like being a poor person in like South Boston <laughs> or something, you know? Yeah. Or in Tally, you know? Yeah. Like- there's, there's a total sense of, of rootedness and community that provides a sense of security and like stability that typically people have experienced in life. I would say many pre-modern forms of life are like this, but now we're dealing with something where wealth status and opportunity are tied to how unfettered you are. And Mm -hmm. that is one of the defining features of this class. And I think as Emmett was trying to say, one of the reasons why the idea of like patriotism or even just like a simple feeling of, you know, gratitude to the place that you're from uh, is, is harder to come by or even understand. I think the thing that we need to talk about is like, what's the ideological mechanism that creates this class or plays a role in creating it? And it's meritocracy. We all grow up with that. I mean, that was, to me seemed like the American way. 
when I was growing up. I remember, I remember working at the Governor Square Mall in Tallahassee and making minimum wage and telling myself if I work really hard, maybe I won't just be a seasonal hire and I can work my way up to manager. And I remember talking to one of the key holders who's like a step below manager to the people that are allowed to open and like, you know, deal with like the expensive, like quote unquote expensive jewelry and the like case for earplugs or whatever. And she was just like, what are you fucking high? <laughs> she's like, <laughs> she's like, do you know how long that would take and how unworthwhile that is? That would take you two years at most provided I quit my job. She said, which I'm not doing because there are no other jobs out there. And I was like, oh shit, there's no, I'm not going to like get a raise or whatever. They implemented like a bonus structure somehow that had to do with getting the, the store to meet like its goal of, you know, surpass its goal of sales by a certain percentage. And then you get 1% of whatever that was. So you get like $2 extra at the end of the day or something like that. And I never got that because, you know, Tallahassee is a seasonal economy because it's a university town, you know? So anyway, there are all sorts of structures that mitigate that. And you think it's your fault because the story that meritocracy tells you is that if you're good enough, you escape the common lot. That's the only goal of meritocracy, which is part of why Lash sees this as a betrayal of democracy. It's because of these paradoxes, or maybe not paradoxes, but inconvenient facts about meritocracy. Like, oh, you know, if you're a part of the lower class, that's just because you didn't get to make it up there. And the thing that would ameliorate a meritocracy is the redistribution of property and resources because that's non-meritocratic. So that's why we get this interesting moment where there's a shift from material politics, as people like to call it, the idea of uh, public, uh, public interest, public good governance to the therapeutic democracy. Well, we can't do material stuff anymore because this is a meritocracy and we don't want to unfairly rig the system, even though meritocracy always goes to the elite's favor because now they just have a justification for why they're there, which is that we're better and smarter than you. And it also exercises itself as like a brain drain. Absolutely does. It pulls the leaders out of the working class because they're trying to escape the common lot. And so, you know, as you said, it's a brain drain. And then on top of that, so the therapeutic uh, aspect of it and what it does is that it just makes you not feel so bad for being in the lower end. That like, oh, in fact, you know, you know, I'm this or that ethnicity and this is really good. Here's my valiant history that I'm somehow tied to, even though I don't participate in anything like that in any meaningful way anymore. And probably no one did because history is not that neat. Just like this noblesse oblige we talk about was abjuring its own class struggles and contradictions, which Lash knows because he was a socialist. What he's pointing out is that it degraded from something like okay to something probably worse uh, in a lot of ways with what we're experiencing now. So that is the therapeutic element of what we're doing. That's why we deal with so much sentimentalism in politics. Or, you know, what's very interesting is Aaron Sorkin just released that movie about, you know, the new left in the 60s or whatever, and the people that get arrested at the 1968 DNC convention or whatever. I mean, 
I'll put it in the show notes. I wrote a piece. I disagree with some of it's now, but the core, the core argument is true. And it's called lecture poor in the vulgar art of liberal narcissism. The right wing has its own version of this. Uh, and this is just the internal self-aggrandizement and shitting on your countrymen and women is the point of political discourse in America so that you don't feel bad. It is a, it is a soothing balm for the absolute degradation of society around you. And this is how you're supposed to understand democracy. This is how you're supposed to be seen by others. Social media is great for this. You know, get those hearts going, fam. This is how I recognize therapeutically that what I'm doing is meaningful. Yeah, it's interesting to wonder, and probably we'll be able to get into this with the social media episode or episodes, is just to what extent, um, you know, we have like several different things jacked into our dopamine system at any given time in order to, as you say, ameliorate or otherwise be a really interesting reality to start to comprehend um, if you weren't living in the midst of things that sort of actively participate in drawing your attention into oblivion, as you might say. Chris Hedges had a great piece about how slot machines don't really function in the way that you might think if you've never played one. Like maybe you think the mm-hmm. machine is there, so you go win. And then like there's a big rush because you won. But everyone who was interviewed um, by this person that he interviewed said that winning was horrible because you were jacked into like a stream of oblivion when you were in the machine. And as soon as you won, it interrupts the flow. But like being in the machine is just sort of like an opioid haze of like you stop existing for a while and that's the bliss that they were seeking. That is so dark, man. That's profoundly dark. And there's basically the way that they build slot machines. They use the same ideas, the same kind of theory of games um, and of user experience and your relationship to like a screen to do smartphone apps and basically anything that's trying to maximize your attention economy. And the theory is that they operate in a pretty similar fashion. Yeah. I mean, I want to read from last year. This is in the introduction, the democratic malaise. And he's talking about a reviewer who read his book, the true and only heaven. And was like, how come democracy never got brought up? And he was like, that's the whole point of the book. I hope I've, you know, in a later chapter, he tries to put to bed any criticisms of that book that were out there. He says, but that this guy could miss the point of that book shows how confused we are about the meaning of democracy, how far we have strayed from the premises on which this country was founded. The word has come to serve simply as a description of the therapeutic state. When we speak of democracy today, we refer more often than not to the democratization of self-esteem. The current catchwords, diversity, compassion, empowerment, entitlement, express the wishful, the wistful hope that deep divisions in American society can be bridged by goodwill and sanitized speech. We are called on to recognize that all minorities are entitled to respect, not by virtue of their achievements, but by virtue of their sufferings in the past. Compassionate attention, we are told, will somehow raise their opinion of themselves. Banning racial epithets and other forms of hateful speech will do wonders for their morale. In our preoccupation with words, we have lost sight of the tough realities that cannot be softened simply by flattering people's self-image. What does it profit the residents of the South Bronx to enforce speech codes at elite universities? You know, I've heard that 
the favorite president of many Native Americans is Richard Nixon because he's the only president that ever gave them back any land in the history of the United States. And I didn't know that. That's wild. (laughs) I've often thought that that really displays that distinction quite well. Like, really, you know, Obama gives you something that's not quite what Nixon gave you, but like one of them matters and endures and lasts and has meaning to you. And the other one is sort of like a therapeutic exercise and, you know, community organizing and, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of operation. Um, And there is, I don't like to just bifurcate everything into like material and psychological because I don't think that's a legitimate way of understanding the world in a totality Mm -hmm. sort of sense. But I do think, that's the basic component there is that you are not like one thing is attending to your current psychological need to feel something okay and the other is attending to a more long-term material underpinning to your life that might provide for you in an enduring way Mm -hmm. and the essential move now is to become entirely preoccupied with attending to the current deep psychological need with whatever is at hand whether or not that deepens the crisis. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, how many people are just like, just bring sanity back. Yeah. Just put sanity back in office. And I get it because as we see now that like the entirety of the Trump administration is hospitalized with COVID-19 as we record this, it's been poorly handled. However, I have to admit that the Democrats would inherit a lot of these same institutions that were crippled before Trump even arrived arrived based on this atrophy. And I think things like the CARES Act, which was a total con job, uh, would have passed anyway. You know? There's definitely an idea that there's somehow like better managers. And I don't I, I don't know how anybody could think that after watching them be in office for a longer period of time. You know what? I'm going to quote from Lash again when he's like tearing into Robert Reich, who, by the way, Robert Reich gets hired by the Clinton administration after he writes The Work of Nations, where the symbolic analyst thing is born. And he becomes the Secretary of Labor. And so a lot of this 1099 economy stuff is all his things. I think I've bitched about this in the past. I want to do a deep dive on the career of Robert Reich. Um, especially because he's one of these like appeal to sanity. We need to make capitalism more fair types uh, that seems to have been given a free ride um, (laughs) from the dark consequences of some of his own decisions. So I'm going to read here and I think it perfectly illustrates some of what's going on. The starstruck road scholar, Robert, Robert Reich, prophet of the new world of abstraction, system thinking, experimentation and collaboration joins the Clinton administration in the incongruous capacity of secretary of labor administrator. In other words, of the one category of employment routine production that has no future at all, according to his own account in a society composed of quote unquote, symbolic analysts and quote unquote, in-person servers. Only in a world in which words and images bear less and less resemblance to the things they appear to describe would it be possible for a man like Reich to refer to himself without irony as secretary of labor or to write so glowingly of a society governed by the best and brightest. The last time the best and brightest got control of the country, they dragged it into a protracted, demoralizing war in Southeast Asia from which the country has still not fully recovered. 
Yet Reich seems to believe that a new generation of whiz kids can do for the faltering American economy what Robert McNamara's generation failed to do for American diplomacy, to restore, through sheer brainpower, the world leadership briefly enjoyed by the United States after World War II and subsequently lost, not, of course, through stupidity so much as through the very arrogance, the arrogance of power, as Senator William Fulbright used to call it, to which the best and brightest are congenitally addicted. <laughs> That's very interesting that he brings up the legacy of Rand. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that what we're talking Rand about, Corp, not Ayn Rand. <laughs> yeah, sorry. The Rand Corporation. Um, there is a lot there that is sort of like World War II. Um, provides us with the germinal state of a lot of what we're going to call knowledge analysts or as a symbolic analyst or whatever. Um, like those professions initially got involved in helping the war effort in a variety of ways. And one of those ways was trying to mathematically formalize certain things about warfare to be able to make predictions about things like take some data, like, uh, you know, like uh, sorties or whatever run by different kinds of planes and then look at the results of those and then be able to have some kind of predictive power and make decisions. Right. The median, on, the median amount of land you need to conquer in order to quote unquote win the war. Yeah. Yeah. X like number of hectares or whatever. How can we use mathematical models to make better wartime decisions, strategic and tactical? Um, So these people during World War II um, basically abandoned the military en masse at the end of the war because the vast majority of academics are extremely uncomfortable working under the military aegis when it's no longer a matter of, you know, a nation at war. Um, And... The Rand Corporation is the way that the U.S. government and the military try to get them back and put them back into a system where the military can readily make use of their research and further what started in World War II. And so when he brings up McNamara, the best and brightest, this is essentially the legacy of that effort at Rand coming into, we could say its peak is McNamara basically bringing in a bunch of Rand people into the DOD and elsewhere. Um, President Lyndon Johnson will actually Randify the federal government in a lot of ways. And the kind of systems thinking sort of becomes hegemonically authoritative and that's one of the stories of the 20th century and I probably an important part of how these professions and methods end up becoming what we see today as like these are the best jobs to have the highest paying jobs the most meaningful kind of work it's how Robert Reich ends up seeing them as our best and brightest in the future and this is all a part of that story um And one of the things that would be really interesting to do is, you know, I think Lash is right. Like, it was a very interesting um, project, but it kind of sounds like a failure when you look at it in totality. Like, we didn't win Vietnam. I don't even Mm -hmm. know what we did there. It was horrific. You know, it would be interesting because I think a lot of the obfuscation around that happens. We're like, oh, they were using math, so... It must have worked. 
So maybe the problem was that they used math towards the wrong ends or something Yeah. rather than like, was anything they were doing actually like that functional or what was going on there? Or like legitimate or thoughtful or anything like that. I mean, this is something that John Ralston Saul gets into in Voltaire's Bastards, the dictatorship of reason in the West. When he talks about this and he talks about McNamara, one of the things McNamara does is he creates an entrepreneurial bent for the officer class in the American military. I don't know why an officer would need to be entrepreneurial or to think of himself as, you know, a maximizer of self-interest or whatever. That seems contra what the whole point of having an officer corps is for. That isn't to say, you know, that there haven't been, you know, I'm taking a look at the Fukuyama paper on the flat military and the flat corporation and there have certainly been times where officers have been more or less in charge of their own operations in a certain way. But maybe this from Saul will help us understand. The idea behind training officers as rational executives was to incorporate a number of business practices and techniques designed to make the Pentagon bureaucracy more efficient. That last part is quoted from something Robert McNamara wrote. These apparently worthwhile techniques did far more than that. They revolutionized the American officer corps by introducing, in the words of Richard Gabriel, the habits, values, and practices of the business community. This, in turn, changed the motivation of officers from self-sacrifice to self-interest. The effect was to transform the professional officer into half-bureaucrat, half-executive. In the process, everyone mislaid the basic given of membership in an officer corps that each individual in order to do his duty is prepared to do the unacceptable, that is, to die. Getting killed, after all, is not logical, rational, efficient, or what a businessman would perceive as being in his personal self-interest. The restructuring initiated a long period during which the American armed forces have been incapable of winning, or to put it another way, capable only of losing. So this is what I think fits into a broader thing of what Lash is talking about, the decay of the nation state. Uh, We've talked about it as civic atrophy before. I think that this qualifies as that. The movement is supposedly one of like an increased rationalization as well. Like that's McNamara saying, like things are going to work better under. Yeah. Scare quotes, rationalization, right? I mean, this is a very specific form of rational thought, which is metrics all this other stuff absolutely and it's not typically ever evaluated and i don't know it's one of the things that i'm trying to look into these days is like you know looking at the early stuff that rancor was doing it was interesting and sophisticated for its time but like looking back extremely extremely primitive like some of the studies and recommendations um The first one, the first major recommendation they ever produced for the Air Force was that the best anti-Soviet nuclear fighting force of planes would be a massive fleet of small, heavy turboprop planes, like super low technology. The Air Force wanted jets. They said, well, going with the current um, budgetary constraints that the Air Force currently has, you use a low technology, massive fleet of planes, all armed with bombs, and you'll numerically overwhelm Soviet air defenses and just drop as many nukes as you can. And that's the best thing that we can give you. 
and the Air Force reacted, one with horror that they would like analyze pilot lives in the same way that they would analyze machinery. And two, with a certain like incredulity that Rand didn't understand that the only reason they existed was to justify a larger Air Force budget to Congress and that they were working with the current budgetary constraints and not doing their role of, you know, making the argument for large increases. Mm -hmm. It was also kind of amazing. Like, do you not know why you exist? <laughs> and Ryan, when producing the study, the people even then admitted, like, we're not really happy with the way that this was done. And that was before much of their storied career. But I think as I'm looking at this, you just sort of realize that there are a lot of limits to statistical modeling, especially the kind we were doing back then. And what seemed to work in World War II due to a, a massive amount of data, due to a massive amount of actual engagements that were taking place, allowed there to be some limited success for these sort of primitive methods. But when you go into we're just going to extrapolate based on nothing, make a lot of stuff up and build these models and then see if they work, you know, like the prediction that the horrific bombing campaigns in Southeast Asia would be like decisive and amazing and totally, you know, like we didn't win that war. Yeah. Like the Rand Corp guys were like totally amazed when the Europeans were upset that they had slated the entire entirety of Europe as a sacrifice zone. <laughs> in the nuclear <laughs> cold war with the soviets they're just like well yeah i mean you know first europe will go but then it'll be us so we'll be able to defend it and like all of our allies were just like a oh, fucking excuse me <laughs> and i think the point that i'm trying to make really circuitously is that you know i think that the public perception of this stuff is that it's math so it must work but the fact of the matter is, is that just because math is involved doesn't mean that any of it worked or like made any kind of sense. Like, was there any kind of evaluative mechanism for this stuff where somebody could look at it and say like, okay, the results that this is producing don't work. And the answer to that is most likely no, like rationalization, at least from what I can tell right now, primarily served the function of like money capturing for organizations that needed a bigger budget. And one of the legacies of World War II, understandably, is that hard science, physics, and mathematics gained a cultural authority unparalleled to anything else. So if you wanted to ask for more money, you produced a bunch of numbers that said that you needed more money or the Soviets were going to win. Mm -hmm. And this built a legacy, I think, of basically you know these congress people didn't really understand the math or the numbers the people in the military most likely not all of them understood the math or the numbers or cared but the fact was that it existed as a black box justification for increasing your institutional power via an appeal to authority to something that most people didn't understand and were not going to look into and that no one was providing explanations of in any way that could matter to the public because all you're seeing are it's data and stuff for like experts or whatever you're excluded from democratically negotiating any of this because this is for experts because it's math and math isn't politics it's truth yeah it's, this is the walter Lippmann dis distinction that lash goes after between like science and math it's truth versus opinion which is the old platonic meritocratic epistocratic cognitive elite 
trick. It's not that this is an aristocracy. It's not that I think debate is bad. I'm just worried that a wrong opinion is going to get in the way of these mathematical transcendent truths that are totally apolitical and need to be negotiated by their handlers. Yeah, when I stop to think at what the vast majority of like mathematical research going on today is probably for, like, I'm willing to bet that most people who graduate from college with a math degree end up working, like creating artisanal financial products for like consumption on Wall Street. Yeah, all that shit is just running the table before anyone else can figure out what you're doing. And then they find a way to fuck you over the next smart guy they get to help you figure out how to run the table with your new math bullshit. That's all it is. So, I, yeah, and I guess to wrap it all back up, this is the way in which a large part of how people have been excluded from, quote unquote, the process and the means by which they were made to feel that they had no place in it. And the people who were running it were made to feel that they had an essential place in it and that they weren't just making decisions or increasing their own personal like net worth and social prestige or whatever, but that, you know, they were also able to believe via these mechanisms that they were making real contributions to governance that were necessary and unassailable in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The March for science, man. And yet, you know, it's sort of like an interesting scientific narcissism. Totally. And so I think to wrap this up, the main thing that, we discover Christopher Lash is concerned about after the first two chapters of his book, the introduction and taking a look at the revolt of the elites. There's a question of what happens to common life given all of this. How can you have a society that sees itself as coherent if people aren't allowed to debate, they're not even given the tools to do so, their democratic abilities wane and a sense-making apparatus apparatus that's helmed by all of these symbolic analysts who seem to be incapable of actually reading the reality around them. How can any of this be shared? How can any of this be shared if we're balkanized into different ethnic groups and we have to put up parapets around them and defend them a war over who's been more aggrieved, which is beside the point of the own material interests that are pressing right now. How can a country hold together? One of the reasons we wanted to look at this book is because it felt very prescient to revisit it. It seems like we're living out some of the things that he was first alerting us to. Everything that he brings up in the beginning, for the most part, has only gotten worse. Most of these debates have not gone away. They've only become stranger, harder to parse, more bad faith on all sides. More therapeutic, more emotive. Someone once pointed out to me that any analysis is going to need three steps. What you notice, what it means, and why it matters. Many academic papers just do one and two and they see it as forwarding the discourse on the contribution 
hey, I'm just inviting you into my own observations and indecision. I don't really want to stake out any turf here. This is about a conversation for other people to have, right? We're all friends in this dying industry. And then there's what we see online all the time, which is skip from step one, what you noticed, to why it matters. You never explain what it means. That's an appeal to authority. Everything we've just described, these cognitive elites, these culture wars, whatever, are different forms of appear, appeals to authority. They preclude any attempt to actually negotiate them. You're labeled as dangerous. You're told you're a fool. People say cancel culture doesn't exist. I'm not really going to get into that here. I think that's a stupid debate because I think what we're actually seeing is that through all of these things that are supposed to make sense of our world for us in which we're supposed to participate in making sense of that world, what we're really doing is selling ourselves to a company that spies on us on behalf of the government and provides us no outlet for understanding the world, even though that's what it says it does on the tin. I can't but see this as an acceleration of all of the trends that Lash was concerned about in writing this book in the early 90s. Yeah, and I love how after he savages Robert Reich quite thoroughly, he leaves us with a nice quote from Robert that maybe proves that he wasn't entirely wrong mm -hmm. when he says, we learn to feel responsible for others because we share with them a common history, a common culture, a common fate. And I think it goes without saying what three things we seem to currently lack. Absolutely. So thank you guys for joining us. We'll leave it at that. And we'll see you next week with more Lash. We hope you enjoyed this. We hope it's helpful. And we're certainly looking forward to deep diving more of it. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review, please, on our behalf. We really appreciate it. Um, and be sure to download the episodes, too, when they come up. That helps a lot. And you can reach out to us at ex.haustpodcast at gmail.com with any comments, concerns, or questions. Stay safe. We'll see you in a week.